Hi, I'm Steve Addison and this is The Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're talking to Steve and Amy Pilato about what it takes to pioneer movements in the Buddhist world. I began by asking them to describe the Buddhist world. Well, the Buddhist world is probably about a billion people globally. There's a bunch of figures out there, but I think that's probably the, a pretty reliable one. There's three schools of Buddhism. There's the Theravada Buddhist world in the Southeast Asia. There's the Tibetan Buddhist world, and then there's the Mahayana Buddhist world up in Japan and China and Korea. And there are huge differences in beliefs between these different schools. In fact, some would totally deny what the other teaches. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that are uniform between them. So the real struggle in reaching Buddhists is the Buddhist teaching on reincarnation makes people ambivalent to change. There's no need to make any big changes because you've got many lifetimes, maybe even millions of lifetimes to get things sorted out. And so you bring in a message about Jesus, and there's really no urgency to deal with it because we've got a lot of rounds on life to get it all worked out. Mm. The other challenge in their belief system is that they don't mind contradictions. There's not a unified system of thought. Um, they'll take Hinduism and add in animistic practices and they'll throw on faith in Jesus and mix it all together. And they're just happy with that. So there's no drive to have an exclusive allegiance to any one thing. And even having beliefs that are totally contradictory is, is no problem at all. There's no need to sort all that out. Uh, The Theravada Buddhist school is Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. And that's sort of one block of Buddhism. And uh, that's the area of the world that we've been focused on. And our passion is to see Theravada Buddhist people reached. Now, ever since mission... Uh, Christian mission has gone to the Buddhist world, there's been a very slow, inch-by-inch progress. Uh, Protestant mission work has been in Southeast Asia for just over 200 years. Mm -hmm. Growth has been real minimal and slow. And uh, we've got some new ideas how to go about that, and we're praying that God is going to give an acceleration and breakthrough and see movements of Buddhist people turning to Christ. And Amy, what what's your sort of what are your reflections on why it's been so difficult in some cases for two hundred years for the gospel well, to spread amongst Buddhists? I mean, I like what Steve said. It's it's true that um, there's just an ambivalence, but I think if you look at what's happening, let's say in the Muslim world, from the time we left to go overseas twenty five years ago, there's been a significant push in prayer every Ramadan mm-hmm. for twenty five plus years. Millions of Christians have prayed during Ramadan asking God to send dreams and visions and open hearts and it's happening. But I don't see in my twenty five years on the field that there has been a significant push anywhere in the world to 
pray for Buddhists. And so naturally, what, what you ask for is what you get, or what you don't ask for, you don't get. And although we ourselves and people we know personally have prayed, there has not been a body-wide movement in, in the body of Christ to really pray for this. And I think this is significant. Are there any exceptions through history or today to this resistance in the Buddhist world to, uh, to the gospel? North and South Korea. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The revivals in, in North Korea a hundred years ago in Pyongyang, it was called the Jerusalem of the East. Mm. So to me, it's no surprise that there is a hugely repressive regime in North Korea because I think it's a spiritual pushback against mm. what God was doing. The South Koreans, you know, one third of them identify as Christian yeah. and are a significant force in the world today in missions. Mm. So that would be one notable exception where the gospel has taken off. Yeah. Another one is in Sri Lanka back in the 1920s and 30s. Okay. Some analysts have looked back at the significant turning to Christ then, and some said, well, really, they were just identifying with British culture, and there was it was sort of fashionable or agreeable that you could turn from your Buddhist ways and become Christian because of the, the British rule. Another encouraging sign in recent years is in Myanmar, where mm-hmm. we see okay. um, literally tens of thousands of Buddhists who turned to Christ in a very short period of time, last two or three years from a Buddhist background. Hmm. And, and in terms of a recent breakthrough, that would be um, the most significant one I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. In Thailand, there is a steady growth. Okay, You can note a couple percent growth in the church every year over the last 10 years. And that, that sounds real positive. Uh, but, but it's, it's not it's, keeping up with population growth. Yeah. It's just slow, bit by bit, hmm. real gradual. In terms of a real breakthrough movement, uh, Myanmar is the only example I'm aware of in recent years. Okay. So the challenge is there, but this uh, this giant will fall. It must. <laughs> and so you guys have been at this now, I, I can't believe it, 20, 25 years. Uh, what, what drew you into this work initially? What, what really grabbed you and thrust you into this this uh, challenging task? Uh, well, initially, it was reading Scripture. Yeah, Genesis our, to Revelation. Our read of Scripture is God's primary mission is to call out people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be His very own people, to hear His voice and obey His commands. And that's the main mission. Uh, the Great Commission is just that proactive sending, hey, go mm. and make disciples of all nations. But the underlying mission, really from beginning to end, is calling out people to be his own. So we wanted a strategic part in that. So we began to study where in the world are the people that no one's reaching or there's no response. Where are the least reached? And let's go make a difference there. And the Buddhist people certainly fit that picture. But I should uh, quickly add that although we've been working for 25 years on the mission field in Southeast Asia, most of our time was not spent with Buddhists, and that was simply because of where we were assigned in the earlier days. We ended up working with um, tribal, animist people, and we saw tremendous turnings there. But as we're approaching the last 15 years of our career cross-culturally, we have said... 
now, you know, just a minute here, circumstances have kind of kept pushing us in that direction, but we're going to make a conscious effort to come back to our original concern for the Theravada Buddhist world, and we're going to focus our time and energy and our training and our work on that. Now, you, you guys are, uh, are, are building a team to fulfill that calling, both of, of uh, nationals in the area and of people from other parts of the world. Um, and I'm just, you know, it'd be great for people listening in who are sort of thinking, you know, I've read some scripture and I'm challenged about this uh, unreached world, up to a billion people uh, of the Buddhist world. So what, what sort of people are you looking for, you know, through your experience? What sort of people are needed uh, in some of these uh, in places? Yeah, our first criteria is they are saying, give me the Buddhists or I die. And mm-hmm. then we'll conduct the interview after okay. that. So there's there has to be this God-given unction, this mm-hmm. certainty on the inside that this this role in cross-cultural missions and to the mm-hmm. Buddhist world is something they must do. If yeah. they didn't carry it out, they didn't pursue it, there's a real sense of disobedience to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so we start with that. It used to be called the missionary call. There yeah. was a there's yeah. a clear sense not just to be involved in disciple making in general, but there's some clarity that's come in their life that they need to do this cross culturally and focused on Buddhists. Mm. Yeah, that's the first thing. Um I mean there's character issues, of course. Yeah. When we look at somebody and we say, is this person suitable for cross-cultural service, it needs to be somebody who's comfortable with risk-taking and... Um, uh, faith. Faith, yeah. So it needs to be somebody who's a person of prayer. Because, as we just mentioned earlier, we're not going to see any kind of breakthrough without serious prayer. And to think that we're just going to go and work hard and that's going to win the day and aren't we wonderful? Mm. Um, no, we're not wonderful. God is. Mm. And we're really going to have to rely on him. So there has to be a willingness in a sense that, yes, I'm going to be placing myself in some very uncomfortable positions. I think people that are willing to have personal sacrifice and have demonstrated that in their life at some level, I don't want somebody that's like, well, you know, I'm only going to live here and I'm only going to do it if it's this mm. and I'm only going to do it's that. Yeah. That doesn't make for a good yeah. cross-cultural worker. Yeah. Doing, doing missions at your own convenience um, isn't going to cut it. Mm. Yeah. There has to be a bit of reckless abandon to do whatever it takes to see a breakthrough, to see these people reached. And that is not going to be convenient. No. And it may involve having to pack up and move and mm. so on. Um, there's a bunch of other things that we're looking for in people. And that is that they're doers. They're mm-hmm. highly obedient. When they learn something from the Lord, they're highly obedient to, right. to live that out in their life. They're constantly wrestling with that question, Lord, what do I need to do to live that out? Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily need people with uh, academic degrees. We're looking for people that um, have a deep abide abiding relationship with the Lord. They're people of Scripture. Okay, they're reading yeah. Scripture a lot. They've read the whole Bible in multiple, More than once, multiple yeah. times. Yeah. They look five, six chapters a day. They pray mm-hmm. an hour or two a day. 
they've probably been or are in an accountability relationship with others. And so there's a deep pursuit of, of that relationship with the Lord. They are self-feeders from Scripture for sure. Um, but they're also active in sharing their faith. They have experience leading others to faith. And, and when they find those hungry people, they've been able to gather a group and, and have probably led disciple-making groups, obedience-based disciple-making groups, such as a three-thirds group or a discovery mm-hmm. Bible study approach. And they've, they've actually led a group of people. They've pulled that group together and they've led it for a year or two. And so they've, they've been involved in the core fruitful practices of, of church multiplication and disciple multiplication. So they need to have that kind of understanding from experience. Yeah, I'd just like to add, um, Steve and I, neither Steve or I went to Bible college. Um, We both have degrees from, you know, public universities in our respective fields. But during that time at public universities, Steve and I were both very involved with campus ministries where we got into the Word, we learned the Word very well, we learned how to feed ourselves, how to lead others to Christ, this sort of thing. And... This is the kind of person we want to, to to work with, somebody that really knows the word well. And for some people, they may want to take formal classes in that, but it's not necessary. What's, in, what's important is that they do know the word, and that's yeah. hugely important. Okay, and does it matter if they're single? Uh, no. No? Well, no? I mean... They could be married. They could be single. I mm. think it becomes very, very complicated to move families with two or more kids right. who have never been overseas, and they're going to start out into a cross-cultural mission overseas. It's very difficult to do that with lots of kids. Mm. Uh, there's some examples, but almost all the examples I know don't end up staying really long. Right. Uh, so ideal, you come as a single or newly married without kids. Okay. Um, so it's not impossible to have kids, but it's better if you have them on the field, so to speak. It's better if you have Way them on better. the field. Okay. Yeah. Let me just start from the ideal. And I know there's yeah. a lot of scenarios sure. and God uses many, many scenarios. So don't let any listener think these are off the radar of what could work, but there's many scenarios. The ideal scenario is you come either single or newly married. You spend about two, two and a half years on the field. You're fluent in the language. You're, you're gaining an understanding with the culture. You're a participator in the culture. And then you start your family on the field. Kids are born. They grow up in yeah. that context. Mom and dad are settled mm-hmm. in their person. They understand mm-hmm. the world around them. They're their stress level is is fine. They're not just you know surviving. They're doing fine in the culture. Then you start your family. That's really the ideal. That's that's good old fashioned missions. There's a huge amount to learn in terms of yes. language and culture. Mm. That that's as as much as a bachelor's degree. Okay. Yeah. And it's something you learn uh, to live out. Mm. Uh, you're not just learning about culture. You're not just learning about phonetics and linguistics. You're living it. You're living, you're a participator in the culture. Okay. Yeah, I'd just like to make a comment, you know, having been on the field as a wife and a mother, mm. uh, 
It is hugely, hugely, hugely important, I cannot say this enough, that if a couple is going to go overseas, the woman has to feel equally as strong as her husband that she would be doing that even if he wasn't going. Mm. Because I must tell you, in my 25 years, I have seen so many families go home because the wife was just doing it when it really came down to it. She was doing it just because it was something her husband wanted Mm. to do and she was happy to go along. This does not work. Yeah. And people are going to argue with me probably about that, mm. but I'll just tell you, I've seen it. The old timers saw it before us, and it was the reason that that was a screening tool in years past. And so the screening tool is that the wife mm. equally shares a call to mm-hmm. this cross-cultural ministry. Yeah. If we're really going to do what it takes to see a people group reached, we are going to have to move to places we don't want to live. We had to homeschool our kids for a season when they hated it. Um, they, They didn't like it so much, but there were periods of time that we did that. There were sacrifices we had to make as a family and as a wife and a mother. I was often in the home, and we had local people coming into our house all the time. So if I didn't have that call, and mm-hmm. I thought, my rule, my, my whole life is just to raise these kids, yeah. this would have been tremendous stress. But I saw that opportunity, and our children saw that opportunity as well. They were involved in a part of what was going on, mm-hmm. because we both were. And we should be clear, too, in this, we're not just saying, you know, what does it take to be a a worker overseas. We're saying, what does it take to be a cross-cultural worker who is sharing the gospel, making disciples, forming churches, and multiplying disciples and churches through indigenous leaders? So this is um, very much on the pointy end of what missions are all about. It's multiplying disciples and churches. That's right. And the role of the outsider needs to be very needs to be clarified and the outsider the far culture witness person needs to understand that they're not going to be a total insider and so we very much look for an insider that we're equipping and empowering Mm -hmm. we as the foreigner or the far culture witness person never lead the new church plant. We're never the first mm-hmm. elder in the mm-hmm. new church. We believe that's really critical in mm. in setting down the right DNA for multiplication. The first elders and, and established leaders of those local churches come from those local villages and towns, wherever they're at, and not the, not the foreigner. So the foreigner does have uh, an empowering kind of role as a trainer, uh, there, there will be times that they may need to model things out on the street, but if they position themselves mm-hmm. as sort of the founder pastor, um, we're never going to see movement with that. Mm-hmm. So coming back to what's the ideal candidate, I mean, or yeah. who's the best person for the job, well, the best person in that kind of role has to be somebody that's humble. Mm-hmm. has a humility to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Not only Christ, but my my national colleagues, my local people, mm. they must exceed me in fruitfulness, and I live for that. That's right. Um, and so if the person coming wants to write home about all these glorious things that they are doing, and how look at how wonderful I am, I think there has to be a self-examination that we have. Yeah. We call this the hero complex. Yeah. <laughs> Here often in 
America, we love our superheroes. I mean, we invented them. And we all like, <laughs> and we like to be the hero. And we want to come in and be on the center stage and, yeah. and deliver, you know, that penultimate sermon at which these awesome people repented and their whole mm-hmm. lives were sorted out by my workshop. And then we can, you know, feel good about all that. And so we are not going to seek movements if that is part of the makeup of our worker. We've mm-hmm. got to believe in the ordinary and that God uses ordinary people. Mm-hmm. If we think we're the superstar and that's why God's using us and we're going overseas and we're going to find the superstars there because those are the people that God really uses and we're going to build our ministry upon those highly talented individuals, um, we're not going to see movement. We're going to see ministry. We can see people come to faith, and that's awesome. But we've got to believe that God's going to raise up and use ordinary people to do this work. So that's kind of the good news in that sense. I mean, is somebody wondering, well, you know, am I fit to do this? I remember when I was first dealing with my own call, I felt disqualified because I had a history of an eating disorder. I thought, oh, you know, I've got problems in my life. And and true enough, those were issues that I had to deal with. But I remember hearing a talk about this that God just asks, are you willing? And I said, I am so willing. Hmm. I'm just an ordinary person who's so willing to do this and be obedient. And the Lord has taken me and used me in that. And so that's the good news for anybody listening to this thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not that great. No, just be obedient. Let God be great. Mm -hmm. So what have you noticed about the workers who start that journey and finish well? In other words, I don't mean they're there till the end of their life, but they're, they're certainly there to see breakthroughs, see the beginnings of movements uh, through all the difficulties. Yeah, there's a hardiness in their person to keep getting up and working through the challenges. Mm-hmm. And you'll go through every kind of feeling in the book, but you keep at it. And... There are people who are content with however God wants to use them. So they really focus on being obedient and serving the Lord and letting the Lord bring the the fruit that he's going to bring and let him bring it when he's going to bring it. Flexible. Mm -hmm. There are people that, as Steve mentioned just now, um, willing to make changes because in the course of 10 or 15 or 20 years of service, you are going to have to serve in different capacities and places and your roles are going to change along the way. And you have to be flexible with that. Okay. Um, it should be a willingness to suffer. Yes. And certainly if you see movements and you see a large number of people coming to faith, there will be persecution even in open countries. Mm-hmm. And, that's going to take its toll on you at uh, an emotional level and in other levels. It's just, so you've got to be willing to suffer and identify with the local believers who will suffer and may suffer in greater ways than yourself as the outsider. Uh, and that, that again ties back to the hardiness, that resilience yeah. that, that keeps going. Hmm. I've been through two uh, major burnout episodes in 25 years. Some people would call it major depression. Mm-hmm. Call it what you like. I don't care. And I don't care if anybody knows that about me because that's just the way it is. So, you know, you might look at me and say, oh, here's an emotionally unstable person. Um, there have been moments where I've been emotionally unstable. and But 
I keep at it. I keep coming back to it. And the major demons, you know, in quotes, I don't mean yeah. the real demons, <laughs> those things that, you know, would, would bother me with my past, those have been dealt with. There aren't huge trigger points and flashpoints that are so sore that nobody can talk with me about it. Somebody that's still raw yeah. in yeah. their emotional issues really needs to deal with it before they go to the field because guaranteed the real demonic stuff will attack mm. you if you are not stable in those areas. Yeah. So it's not that yeah. you don't ever have problems or issues or need help. That isn't it. But there has to be enough of a stability in you that you cannot that you can take some of those flaming arrows of the evil one and still keep going. Yeah, exactly. Good. That's right. So you, you know how to rely on the Lord with that. Mm. You're not just turning to medicine and extra sleep at night to solve all the problems, but you, the, you're really relying on God for a supernatural intervention. Mm. Okay. What about, uh, someone's listening here and, and, uh, they're thinking to themselves, but how do I know? How do I make a good decision about such a challenging call? Uh, what What would you advise them to do to, to, to process that call? Well, the first and most important thing is they've got to go back to the Word of God and they have to spend time with the Lord and hear His voice. They should have confirmation from other people around them that, yes, they do have the kind of gifting and the kind of character needed for long-term, full-time work. Now, there is a school of thought, certainly in the modern church, um, Western church, that says, oh, you should go have a short-term trip overseas and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds about that. I see that for some people that's been helpful. So I'm not going to say it doesn't ever work, but truly the godly men and women of old did not do this. And certainly the people in the, in the Bible did not. Abraham was told to leave his home and his father and go to the land God would show him. And I see that with, with all the people who obeyed God, when the call of God came, they didn't need to see what it looked like first. And I think we're living in a time where it's so easy to take a plane or whatever. So we're just going to go see what you see may not be what God's telling you. It's easy to look at something and say, Oh, well, I didn't like that. So I'm not going. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So I think it really has to come down to, first of all, what does the Word say and what is the Holy Spirit saying? Mm-hmm. Another thing to look at is, is God using you where you are? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Amongst your own culture and people. And if, I mean, if He is, that's an that's a indicator. Then the next thing to maybe look at is, does He use you cross-culturally in your home country? Yeah. And you may get a real sense that he is, and maybe even using you cross-culturally better than with your own culture. That actually happened for both of us. The Lord Mm. used us with um, uh, Asian people here in the the United States, and we were more fruitful with them than we actually Mm. were with people that grew up in this country. So that was was a clue. That was a clue. Hey, maybe I'm really the guy cut out for the cross-cultural thing. Uh, the gift of being a missionary is an exceptional ability to relate to and communicate with people of another culture. And so having that gifting is like really awesome. <laughs> if you sense that in you, that's a really strong indicator. You need to pursue a cross-cultural mission role. 
One other comment. I think there's actually a very small percent of people that are cut out for this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think just, I think everyone can be involved in missions in a broad sense, but that you're going to be the point person in a cross-cultural setting uh, is actually a very small percent of the body of Christ that's mm-hmm. suited for that kind of thing. And so it does need some thought and discernment. Am I that person that needs to vocationally serve the Lord cross-culturally? What, what, what would you advise them about, you know, forming the right sort of partnership with a mission agency? Well, the first thing to look at is shared vision and mission. Mm-hmm. The vision statement and the mission statement, that is the end picture that that organization wants to see, the mission statement, what is their role in seeing that vision happen, has got to line up with your vision and mission. You've got to have alignment there. The next thing to look at is their core values. What they really value talks about how they're going to go about living out their mission in hopes of seeing the vision happen. And if there's serious disagreement between yourself as a candidate and some of the values of that organization, it's not going to be a very good fit. Something I'd like to comment on, there's an increasing um, number of people coming overseas who have no mission agency at all. Mm -hmm. And they might be coming out from a single church that's sending them um, some of them are even coming on their own, yeah. just with jobs or whatever. And, you know, our feeling after being overseas for 25 years is don't do that. Okay. Please get a mission agency for the first 10 years. After you've been on the field for 10 years, if you want to cut loose with that and just have a church that sends you because you've already made all your ties and connections in the field, great. But when you're first coming overseas, what typically happens if people don't have an agency that's seriously behind them, they end up turning to, to people like us and others on the field to be that for them. And there's no way that we can fill that in addition to what we're already doing. And we've seen it be a tremendous burden to other workers on the field. Mm. So, um, yeah, I would say hardly a week goes by where I don't get a, could I take you out for coffee so you can tell me all the good connections out here and you can sort of answer my logistics questions of how to get settled and get set up. And, uh, you know, an agency can really help with that and should help with that. And yeah. another thing to look for in an agency is is to meet some of the people in that organization and just say, you know, is there some chemistry with these people? Yeah. Are these the people I want to be around when I'm at my worst, when I've got hard questions, when I need a little inspiration? If these people are inspiring you, you're encouraged, these are the kind of people you want to be with. That's a great marker. Yeah, don't pick your agency because of their financial policy or their retirement yeah. plan or yeah. what's in Section 3 of the Human Resource Code. It really comes down to, are these the people I want to be with? Mm. And with long term. Are they doing the stuff that I want to do? Are there people I look up to? Mm. Are there people that I say, gosh, I want to be like that in five years or ten years? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I want to be like those people. Gee, I want to go hang out with them. So that's the kind of group you join. Because you know what? Every mission agency got his problems, just like every church got his problems, just like every person got their problems. So, you know, there, there's nothing perfect out there. Yeah. So, guys, you've, you've given 25 years. 
Um, I, I think another 15 years is a little too conservative, but let's say you've got another 15 years. No. That's 40 years. You're at the end of that period of time. What, what are you trusting God for? What, what do you want to see happen in the Buddhist world? Our vision, our longing from the heart is to see a, a movement of churches that are planting churches throughout the Theravada Buddhist world. Uh, we see at least 200,000 new Buddhist background believers within those 15 years. Uh, we see those churches sending people out cross-culturally. Mm-hmm. We see those churches impacting their culture, their villages, their towns or cities. Um, this, this is stuff you're going to see in the newspaper. This isn't just done off in the corner. It's going to be significant enough wow. that it, it becomes something in the news in a good way, in a transforming way to their world. Yeah.